I'm Britta Wigginton. I'm Brett Scholes. And I'm Ada Gibson. We're a group of early career researchers. And we're all from the International Society of Critical Health Psychology. Otherwise known as ISCHIP. And you're listening to The Operative Word. Antonia Lyons is a Professor of Health Psychology and Head of School of Health at Victoria University of Wellington. In 2017, at the International Society of Critical Health Psychology Conference, she presented her keynote entitled Youth Drinking Cultures and Embodied Neoliberalism, Digitized Bodies, Circuits of Affect and Power. In this episode of The Operative Word, Brett Scholes, me, and Ali Gibson have the pleasure of being able to discuss with Antonia some of the key lessons from her keynote presentation. Thank you so much for making time to chat with us, Antonia. You're very welcome. It's a privilege. It's lovely to be here talking to you both. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Your keynote was so well received by the community. You know, everyone who we spoke to at this chip just had various bits and pieces that they were able to draw from it. And I think that's why it was so popular. You know, it touched on so many of the facets of things that we were interested in, like Mm. gender, neoliberalism, Mm. risk behaviours, well-being. It it cut across so many people's research agendas and interests. But to start off, I wondered if you could just potentially tell us what inspired you to give this keynote. And I almost want to ask, why now? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good question to ask. Um, Well, as you know, I've been doing research on young people's drinking cultures for the last few years. And one of the things that that gets me about this area of research is that all the different perspectives that are taken on it. So you get, you know, health promotion, you get the risk behaviour stuff, you get the moral panics about young people and their terrible, um, out-of-control drinking behaviours and they can't Mm. control themselves. Um, and then you and you don't get a lot that comes from the young people's own perspectives. And when you start looking at the ways in which social media play a role in that, why are they posting drinking photos? What's you know what's in it for them? What are their what are they getting out of it? People don't. A lot of the research really isn't asking them or seeing it from their perspective. And I think that's one of the issues um, around. Why now? It's just like, why is this important for them now? I mean, young people have always drunk, but why are they drinking in this way? And why are there these kinds of moral panics around it now? And why, and, you know, social media plays into that, where there's, I mean, there's always panics about what young people do all the time. Um, But you get drinking and social media together, and it kind of intensifies that. Even though when you look at the population drinking statistics, they're not even necessarily the population group that are drinking the most. Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess what I wanted to do coming to the Critical Health Site Conference is take those things and go, so what is it? What's going on? Why now? Why this point in historical time and cultural context and social context um, that... these discourses are out there, these narratives around young people's drinking, and what are the um, sort of, what aspects of social theory can we bring to bear? So it really was saying, okay, so where can we go to try and make sense of these understandings of young people's drinking cultures? And I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of touched on so many people's um, Mm -hmm. research areas was because it was trying to do that bigger, broader overview using social theory. Actually, 
touching on what you're saying, Antonia, about using social theory, and I think that's something that you picked up on in your talk, um, is how can we use social theory and for what purposes um, as critical health psychologists? I think, yeah, so, so what you can do with critical social theory is that you can sit back, and this is what the keynote gave me the chance to do, and what I would really like to write up at some point when I find the time, is it gives you the, the chance to sit back and look at the broader picture, and look at um, not just structures in society, but the power relations that are playing out, and try and bring different literatures together. So one of the things I wanted to do was say, okay, so there's a lot that's been written around neoliberalism, and there's been quite a lot that's been written around the alcohol industry and neoliberalism, and there's been stuff that's been written about young people's behaviours and neoliberalism, but it's trying to put that together. And then thinking about materiality, and because, you know, when we drink, we are drinking with the physical body, and the alcohol has effects on the physical body, so how have people theorised materiality? And how and you know why people why do people drink because it's pleasurable because they have fun because they say it's social and fun so what is it around the affect of the body so there's been a lot written in social science theorizing in recent years around affect um, and and the body and trying to collapse that body you know the the dualisms between body and society or materialism. Um, and so it's kind of like trying to bring those things together to say, okay, so if we could take drinking cultures as a case study kind of thing, we might be able to understand some of the things that are going on there for young people. Can I touch on um, social media's place in a site of reproduction or challenging that affect? And how, in your view, has that has that changed or has it not changed the context of youth drinking behaviours? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> so, um, affect's been used quite a lot in, in media studies and cultural theory because they've talked about affect of technologies. Okay. So when you talk about affect, it's not so much necessarily how psychology people understand it as emotion, it's just being affected by something. Okay. So in terms of social media, the technologies are effective technologies because something comes into a newsfeed, it affects a user. Mm. And then there's, they talk about circulations of affects, so the whole point is to try and get attention. And you get attention by affecting people mm. and engaging their affect. It, so that they share or comment or post or whatever. So these circulations of affect that go around the technologies. So, you know, the thing about that kind of work is that the user is just not theorised that fully because it's about the technologies and the flow of information and the flow of affect. So when we, you know, looked at this, that kind of framework to drinking cultures, it's just like... You can't, we can't, for me, I can't get away from the user. I can't get away yeah. from the drinker, from the person who wants to go out and drink and have fun and be doing fun things with their friends. And it's very sociable for them. So for them, the technologies, yes, they affect them, but they're also a key part of the socialising and a key part of the pleasure. So the drinking photos are about having fun and extending the fun. So yes, we're drinking now, but we can... 
share these photos now and then talk about them tomorrow and next week and six months time mm. and so on so it's kind of like a remembering mm. but it's also like in the moment this is a cool thing to do this makes us all laugh let's take a photo of that because it's really funny a lot of it so that's why on on social media cat videos and things they make us laugh they make us smile it affects us and yeah. so it gets more attention yeah. and it gets more visibility. And that's part of the thing if you start thinking about the user, the young person, they're doing their identity online. So getting mm. attention is important for them and mm. performing a particular kind of self is important for them because that's their identity because part of their life is played out online. Mm. Yeah. It also speaks to relationality, that they're always doing this in relation to other people online. Absolutely. And those parallels, but this is the thing that when you get into this, there's these parallels between the social media world and the drinking world. So, you know, for young people, drinking is about drinking with friends. Getting drunk with people, is, getting drunk on your own is when you've got a problem. You would not go yep. home and have a beer or a glass of wine. It's about being with friends and drinking and not just drinking but in terms of embodied drunkenness getting drunk at the same level at the same time so they've got to kind of control how much they're drinking mm -hmm. to be all kind of intoxicated at around the same level at the same time during as the night goes on yeah so that's quite important for them and then when you think about that in terms of social media it is it's not about being on there on your own it's all about relate you know, it's a relational part of it that makes it so appealing. Mm. Relating to other people, it is about being online with your friends, sharing things with your friends, it's your wider social group. It, it generally isn't about interacting with randoms, as, as they say. Yeah. yeah. I just want to pick up on what you were talking about. It's a performance, like performative um, thing. And I'm interested, I know you've published recently with Brendan Goff about men and masculinities and drinking cultures. Mm -hmm. I'm referring to a chapter called Masculinities, Alcohol Consumption and Social Networking by Antonia and fellow ISCHIP member Professor Brendan Goff from Leeds Beckett University. Could you speak a little bit about the role of gender in social media and that intersection? Mm, absolutely. So the thing about gender is that, so that's one of those vectors of power that play out that quite often we overlook and mm. that's and that's one of the things that happens in um, sort of more mainstream work is that it kind of occludes these power relations yes gender ethnicity class uh, but gender and social media is a really big one because in terms of women grow young women growing up they learn very early on that how they look and what their bodies look like is very important and when you're talking about social media it's it's gone increasingly visual. So it's about yeah. posting photos and videos. So how you look and what your body is doing is really important. And it's more important for women than it is for men. Mm. So when you talk about drinking cultures, you know, there is a part of drinking cultures is that you go out and you drink alcohol until you're intoxicated. And you, you know, there are ways in which you manage that level of intoxication because you don't want to get too drunk. But, and so for women, that's particularly important because they are, it's a double standard. So they look worse, they're judged in worse ways by being too drunk. Whereas men, it's kind of just like hegemonic masculinity. That's what men have always done. We kind of accept that behavior. It's still not, it's still not considered that out of, 
out of the realms of possibility that men do this. this you know, it's kind of like still a normalised type thing. But for young women, even now, even though young women have been drinking a lot for, you know, a few decades now, um, it's still it's still transgressing that I, ideal femininity and what we expect of an ideal feminine subject. Mm. And so once you get social media in there and you're getting pe- people posting photos of this, it actually can be quite a negative experience for young women and so they have to be more careful about what gets posted and who's taking photos of them and they have to do much more work online to manage that display so they have to untag themselves and they have to check and they have to ask their friends to take down or they have to spend time deciding which of these multiple photos they'll put up because they don't want to transgress those boundaries of ideal femininity yes um, I didn't think about that kind of curation of yeah, identity so, presentation. Yeah, so we have written a paper about that in mm. social media and society about how much more work it takes for young women than young men to to do that online performance around drinking cultures. Mm. Because young men, they can go... I mean, they can also ask for photos to be taken down or whatever, but they just don't tend to look. They don't. It's just not such a big deal to them because it's not such a fundamental part of their identity online as it is for women. I think that's such a compelling example of the intersection of social forces and, you know, the the monitoring that is, or the need to monitor that is placed on individuals, but then also the embodied experience of having to monitor, like self-monitor and and curate your identity and the effect, well, effect of more in terms of the psychological, emotional impact of that. So I remember from your talk back in July, how you said it so clearly impacted on women where they were waking up in the middle of the night to check photographs and untag themselves. Absolutely. So when you think about embodiment and materiality and what your body is doing, your embodied routines, just sleeping, you know, for some women, that's being interrupted by an alarm on their phone to let them know that somebody's tagged them in a, fa- in a photo on Facebook. And they will go on, wake up, check it, and untag themselves if, it's, if it doesn't conform with what they want, you know, what they want online of themselves. If it looks too tragic, too slutty, too messy, mm. they'll untag themselves. And that's really important. So that... Just even just in terms of the time and effort required, women have to do more of that kind of labour than men do. Mm. And they tend to have more photos put up of themselves as well. And one of mm. one of the reasons for that, and they take lots more selfies and you know, in friendship groups and of themselves. And you know, possibly one reason for that is that if you have lots of images then no one image can come to represent you. So it becomes a kind of meta text. So nobody can say, oh, so that's you. But if you've got 15 photos or 15 selfies before you go out, it's just like, oh, you're all these things. So it kind of means, you know, there are different meanings to to images Mm. online. So, and it is very much about self-surveillance. So when you talk about Foucault's concept of governmentality, it's very much the conduct of conduct, what is normal in the space and what should we be doing as good citizens. So as good citizens, these young people are definitely trying to perform a desirable 
self that's you know in line with our understandings of um, masculinity and femininity quite often heterosexuality and you know all those other forms of identity categories I guess at the same time without realizing that these structural forces are going on where people who are of like if sort of for our, in our work, it was young Māori people who were already seeing themselves as the object of scrutiny. So already, before even anything's happened for a night out drinking, thinking about how they might be seen by others in a way that Pākehā just didn't consider. Never, it never came up. And don't have to consider it, yeah. Because they're invisible in that world. Their whiteness gives them that privilege of being able to be invisible. They don't have to think about ethnicity or being the object of scrutiny in the Mm. same way that young Māori do and young women do because they're, you know, they've learned to embody what they're supposed to be looking like and what those notions of ideal femininity are. Mm. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to the point that you made about paying attention to local context yeah. and how those very particular intersections of race or gender or social structures within a particular context play out. Um, and that might be different in another country. So yeah. And those are really rich examples. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why this critical social theory is so valuable because it can do the, you know, really big picture stuff, the kind of, okay, what's going on globally and where are the forces, including commercial forces, which are going on there as well. But also, but we need to look at the local to see how that's playing out for people in their own social contexts. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One of your... um calls or I'm going to call it a call to action. I don't think you used that that language, but I took it as a call to action, um, was that we need big ideas, as you put it. And without theorizing about critical social theory, um, building better understandings of practice and behaviors as they relate to well-being, that's almost what we need to be engaging in. I'm just curious if you could talk a bit more about how we, as critical health psychologists, take our knowledge and put that into practice? How can we use critical social theory or the other tools at our disposal to um, turn that into practice and policy change? I mean, I think one of the things that this kind of social theory can do is highlight the structural inequalities Mm. that are going on here because things like social media platforms just occlude them. Mm. And as as though everybody comes in as a user with exactly the same background and every, you know, But it's not the case, and it's the same for drinking cultures, it's not the case. So what critical social theory can show you is, okay, what are the power issues going on? Where, you know, where do they intersect? Mm. Um, And and once you can identify those structural forces that are meaning that some people have to put a lot more effort and time and sometimes money into Mm. performing a, a desirable or a morally upright identity online, um, you can start to see how actually it's not a fair playing field. Not everybody can be freely performing their sense of self online in the same way. Mm. And I think that's exactly where social theory, this kind of critical social theory, can be very useful. 
I think it also means that, um, just thinking about that local and global stuff, Raywin Connell, who's from Sydney, um, has written a lot about how knowledge, where knowledge comes from and how, and um, where the big ideas come from. And it's been traditionally the global north. Mm. And what we can do from this side of the world is actually take a more critical perspective on that because some of that works for us here, but some of it doesn't because we've got different structures and different, you know, vectors of power happening, as as do every local place. Mm. Um, and I think that can be really helpful too. What do you think, as researchers, the knowledge that we get from our local context, what do you think we, that can offer globally? Oh, mm. I, th- I think it's really important because mm. what it can do is disrupt assumptions about that this knowledge is global. Yes. Because sometimes the knowledge doesn't work yeah. in, in different contexts. And by showing how and why it doesn't work, uh, we can highlight what's going on. Yeah. You know, why isn't it working here? There's something else going on here. And that is something that people from another culture or another place or even another time haven't even considered. It's just an assumption. And it's kind of, so it's just kind of highlighting, uncovering some of those assumptions and disrupting what what might be taken for granted. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, yeah, laying some of those ideologies, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And I think especially working in post-colonial contexts, that's particularly relevant for us. Absolutely. It's really important. And I think um, what it enables us to do, because... We come from a context where, you know, ethnicity and class and gender, these are all really important within our societies. With it. And the post-colonial context means that you have to think about the history of the culture and the country and the society in which you're in. So that means that being social scientists in these contexts, we, we already have to think about those things. It's really important for us to think about those things to make any kind of a difference. Mm. I have a something of almost a selfish question because I'm really interested in co-production with the people that our research impacts the most mm-hmm. on. And you mentioned in your keynote about, um, I don't know if you called it an advisory panel, but, but involving young people in your research design and, and yeah. research methods, um, which I think is brilliant. So I have a couple of questions about that, but I guess the first one is, um, can I just ask about the process, you know, how you went about that? Um, sure. So it wasn't very formal. Mm-hmm. It was quite informal. We were very, so we made sure we had lots of um, postgraduate students who worked with us on the project. And so it really was getting into their networks and Great. them asking people to be involved. And so we ensured that they had their own advisory groups mm. from you know, the people that they were interested in working with. So some of our postgraduate students were really young and part of that group anyway. Right. Um, and some of them weren't, but got into kind of local, younger people's friendship networks mm. um, to ask them about giving them advice about how to recruit and what would be interesting to ask. And especially when you're talking about social media, because it changes so quickly, young people know know about it more than we do sure. so, you know they're the ones with the expertise <laughs> not us so um, we need to know what's going on and so it was it was kind of just doing those informal groups and talks with young people about what would be good how do you how would you recommend this mm. 
but it kind of went all the way through the project. So even when it came to dissemination, it was like, okay, so if we were going to give this back to young people, so we'd go and talk to young people and say, what's the, you know, here's some key things that have come out of our research. What grabs you the most? And they'd be like, well, that really isn't, I don't care about that. I don't care if Facebook takes all my information. But the fact that they're selling it and using me as free yeah. labor, that really, I didn't think about it in that way. So mm. just getting them, to, you know, these are, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, getting them to talk about this and saying, if you told me about that, I would be really interested. I mean, if you don't ask them all the way through, you're really not going to be able to, capture what's going to make a difference for them mm. um, or get the research that is relevant. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about the benefits and challenges of that, but I think you've already touched on the benefits that yeah. there's knowledge that you just wouldn't have otherwise had access yeah. to. In terms of challenges, is there anything that you'd do differently next time to improve the process or uh, any thoughts you have on that? Oh, there's so much I'd do differently. <laughs> we can always do things differently. Um, I think, so, I, well, things have changed as well since we did that research. So things have gone a lot more mobile. So I would like to use the technology more and get something that has been devised by young people, like get a something that's that they could use on their own phones yeah. but that they would want to use and yeah. that would be useful yeah. for us but useful for them. Yeah. So it would be really nice to develop some kind of technology that they would like to have on their phone mm. that will help them and give them what they want. That might be a critical, you know, a sort of ongoing feedback about the ways in which their data is being used or something to sort of disrupt the seamless flow of social media content to remind them maybe around okay. the ways in which users are kind of enrolled to make big corporations money mm, that kind of mm, thing mm. Um, but which would also help us and what we're trying to do with our research so that's one big thing would be Great ideal example. Yeah, yeah wonderful did it and i'm hoping it did did the inclusion of you know, these people's networks, the postgraduate students' networks that you draw on include Māori, female, male, like did it okay. include a lot of other minoritised groups? Uh, and yeah. if so, how did that help? Yeah, so we set it up explicitly to look at um, Pākehā friendship groups, Māori okay. pa- friendship groups and Pacifica friendship groups. Mm. And so we recruited three PhD students, all of whom were from that ethnicity so that they could go in within their own local cultures and talk to these people. So that didn't mean to say that the Pākehā researcher only had Pākehā participants. Sure. She ended up with whoever, whichever participants chose to take part in that friendship group, and they were sure. often a mix of ethnicities. But it was kind of like for the Māori and the Pacifica, particularly the Pacifica groups, they were basically all Pacifica. Mm. I mean, they drank together and they had the same understandings around drinking. Mm. Because church and family was so much more um, important to think about and to not have photos and to not Mm. let people know what they're doing and to drink not in public spaces but in cars or car parks so that people didn't see them, you know, that kind of thing. So we set it up explicitly to look at three different ethnicities and what's going on within those ethnicities. Mm. Yeah, but that doesn't mean to say that they weren't. Exclusive. Sure. Yeah. That's great. So we've had some time now since yeah. 
since the keynote that you delivered uh, in July of 2017. Um, and so I guess, what are the next steps for you and what's changed in the meantime? Um, I guess since July, yep. I went and gave another talk at the Global Alcohol Policy Conference in Melbourne in October. Mm. Um, and I did a talk around uh, alcohol marketing on social media. Mm. Um, and that was a really interesting conference for me to go to because it really did make me see how much this work ties in with other alcohol research that's going on. But how much is how much the commercial forces are driving everything and how much money alcohol companies are making out of different populations. Yeah. Um, and and how under the radar that often is. Um, and how we really, I mean, the amount of lobbying that they do and the amount of things that they are involved in behind the scenes, the amount that they, you know, sponsor breast cancer awareness, even though alcohol is considered a risk factor for breast cancer, you know, these kinds of things. And I think when you look at it in the digital space, users are seen as individuals who go on and freely give their time. And, you know, it's a very useful, valuable tool for them or the platforms are really useful for them. But actually the social media platforms themselves are commercial and entities that are making a lot of money out of users' activities, um, as are, global alcohol corporations who are on those platforms really really everywhere they're kind of saturating it and heineken live is one example where they've developed an app where you can have it on your phone and you can go out and at night and it's like pokemon go so you get rewards and you can go and get free promotions for having this on when you're out socializing and it's linked to the city that you're in so they have it in sydney they have it in (laughs) auckland so you get updates, and because of the technology changing and the geolocation technology that we have, you get updates based on where you are in the city about what's happening close by you and what promotions. And if you go and do these things, um, you get rewards, which you can then use for like free entry or... or and so they, it is like Pokemon Go, but for, for adult drinkers. Wow. And so this kind of real time, this intersection between the sort of location services and the users and the technology and the drinking, you know, and the selling of alcohol products. I mean, academics really don't even know what's going on in this space because it's happening so quickly and nor do policymakers. So when I gave my talk at this Global Alcohol Policy Conference, I had lots of people coming up saying, wow, you know, this is actually going on. And, you know, I think this is just the beginning. Mm. So... Looking at how the commercial forces are playing a role in young people's social lives is a really big next step, and that's where I'd like to go. Oh my gosh, yeah. there is so much to digest there. Oh. That's really full on. <laughs> it's such a rich area of inquiry. Yeah. It'd be fascinating to see what comes out of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's something that you could look at across all kinds of different behaviours. Mm. Exactly. And different True. groups, yeah. We oh. always um, end with a question to uh, the people that we're speaking to. What would you say is the operative word that encapsulates your talk? Goodness. <laughs> it was probably about embodied neoliberalism. That was really what I was trying to capture. This was yeah. so wonderful. Thank you thank so you. much. Yes, thank you so much, Antonia. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Operative Word. 
the podcast of the International Society of Critical Health Psychology. We would love to continue this conversation with you. If you have any comments, follow our Twitter account at CritHealthPsych and or use the hashtag BOW, short for the operative word. You can keep up with the editorial team on Twitter too. Ali Gibson is at Ali F. Gibson. Britta Wigington is at Brit underscore Wig. And I am on Twitter at Brett underscore Scholz. Thanks again to our special guest, Antonia Lyons. Follow Antonia on Twitter at AntoniaCL.